Today is August 4th, 2010. Our message is called, A New Thing. You're from the South, like I am. It's a new thing. T-H-A-N-G. New thing. Uh, I'd like to talk to you just for a moment about the last couple messages that we've had. The last three, I think. I think it'll help give you some perspective on what the Holy Spirit is doing. When we go back to a couple Sundays ago, to a message called, Shekels in Shirts. This message emphasized that the lamb that was slain must receive the reward of his suffering. And of course, the reward of his suffering is your obedience. We did our very best to expose people's tendency to sell out for shekels and shirts. And we did that in an effort to check your motivation for your service to God. What motivates you to work for God is an important thing. Then on a Wednesday, we covered Zacchaeus' life. And we emphasize that leaving the framework of self-sufficiency and religious pride to meet Jesus and begin a new life of utter dependence on Him was essential. Our goal in covering this was to make an effort to get you to consider the methods by which you were going to serve the King of Kings and carry out your service to God. In our first week, we wanted to examine your motivation. In our second week, we wanted to examine your methods. Then this last Sunday complete with a special song. We covered Mary, Did You Know? We wanted to emphasize that you can be pregnant with vision, that your acts of obedience have unforeseen ramifications in the kingdom of God. Our goal in covering this was to speak to you about your expectations that you should have in carrying out your service to God. In other words, that not to dream too small. Big things are possible. Five loaves and two fishes could make an enormous difference in 5,000 people's lives and 2,000 years of history. Tonight I hope to speak to you about a new thing. But it's in an effort to adjust or assist you in your effort to receive from God. We want to talk about reception of what God is doing in your life tonight. Turn with me to Habakkuk 2. We'll be in the 14th verse. Habakkuk is in the Minor Prophets. Maybe the easiest way for you to find it is start in Matthew and hang a left. Tell me when you're there. Here comes Habakkuk 2. Here is verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the glory... I'm sorry. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord... As waters cover the sea. How much do waters cover sea? I would say 100%. Can't have a sea without water. All sea is water. (laughs) So I would say that Habakkuk is describing a time when people will know or understand or perceive the glory of God as much as you perceive the sea to be water. Would everybody agree with that? How many times do we struggle to see the glory of God in things? Look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is a statement that goes with this one. In Isaiah 6, starting in verse 3, speaking of heavenly creatures speaking to one another, it says, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. From Isaiah, we see that the entire earth is full of God's glory. From Habakkuk, we see that there will be a day where your knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. 
The problem is not that the glory of the Lord does not encompass the earth. The problem is that we fail to perceive it in certain circumstances. I want to read to you something that I'm calling perception and reality. Okay? Our perception is that God may not be involved in something. Our perception may be that there's no glory for God in a given situation. But the reality, as the Word says it, is God's glory already covers the earth. Here comes Hebrews 11.6. You don't have to turn there. I want you to listen to this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. In our creed-driven churches, during a time period where we read what we must believe to be a member, and it's a criteria of membership, we could read this and simply say, I believe God exists, and I want to seek Him. And yet, I think that the meaning of this in its context, having spoken about all of the men of faith, is not simply that God exists, but that He exists in whatever situation you're struggling with right then and there. None of you have a problem believing that God exists. The problem is, is God really involved in this horrible situation with my boss? This horrible situation with my parents? This horrible situation, whatever it is. And yet, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, rather than that be a blanket statement about someone's life, because everybody claims to have faith, even George Michael claimed to have faith, right? Sang about it and shook his moneymaker to the music. How about having faith in that one situation that you don't see God at work in? And what is it that you have to do? Believe that He exists in the situation and that He rewards the person who is seeking Him. I think that there are some problems with our receiving what God is doing. Number one is we don't always see what He's doing because we don't see Him at work in the situation we're involved in at all. We're convinced somehow we've missed God or He's missed us and we're somehow stranded in a limbo between what God will do and what God has done and we're just kind of in neutral waiting. I think that Hebrews is exhorting us to see God in any and every situation and then begin to trust that He will reward you for seeking Him in that situation. Believe that He exists in your present situation or difficulty, and that He rewards those who seek Him. Turn with me to Psalm 51. We're going to talk about cardiac surgery for a minute, so that we can look at better ways to fit all of the Lord's fullness into our little beating hearts. Psalm 51, or if you prefer, 51. How about this for a common scripture? <clears throat> 51 verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's an interesting thing to ask God to create in you a new heart. In the Genesis account, there are two words that are used, and they're used somewhat as alternates, but also if you look carefully... There was a method to the madness. God said that He created some things. This word in Hebrew is bara. And He said that He made other things. That word is asa. I want you to notice that when David is saying, Create in me a clean heart, Lord, he uses a Hebrew word that does not mean to take what is there 
and remake it, or what is there and clean it. He used the word borrow. This is a verb in the Bible that never has any other subject other than God. Only God can borrow. Man can asa, man can make things, but only God can borrow. He asked God to create in him where nothing else of worth exists, a new heart. When we're talking about needing to receive from God, one of the things that we need to do is begin to adjust our perception to reality. And the reality is God is in every situation. A home where children are being abused, God is still involved in that situation. A situation of injustice so that there is literal present day slavery. God is still involved in that situation because the glory of the Lord fills the entire earth. What has not yet filled the earth is the knowledge of God's glory. We don't yet perceive it. We don't yet understand what He's doing. In fact, the biggest hindrance to that is our own heart. Maybe, maybe we could all consider that instead of just giving our hearts to Jesus... You remember this little prayer? Oh honey, just give your heart to Jesus. Although that's good, listen to how incomplete it is. Maybe we need Him to give His heart to us. At what point during Jesus' ministry did He ever question His Father's involvement in what He was doing? At what point during His ministry did things get so bad that He thought God had forsaken Him? There was only one moment in which those things happened. That's when your sin and my sin fell upon Him. Friends, we need a heart transplant. We need a heart that can receive the glory of God in any and every situation. We need a heart that begins to cry out, He exists right here in this situation, rather than a heart that says, He has abandoned me. Sometimes to receive what God is doing, we need to let go of our conceptions of what He will and will not do. In fact, turn with me to Isaiah 43. Don't get tired of turning. This is a text you'll want to know. If you're the kind that takes notes and learns from notes and absorbs things from notes and you have quit taking notes in this church, you have made a horrible mistake. God is revealing things to us on a regular basis. You need to show the same diligence that you did at the beginning. As soon as you draw the line and say this cup is full, God will consider you filled and not pour any more in you. But you need to squeeze every last drop you can get out of this as long as you're here. I promise that. You in Isaiah 43? Isaiah 43, look at the 16th verse. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and the reinforcements together. By the way, what does that draw the mind? When he makes a path through a sea and horses and chariots end up at the bottom of it. What does that draw the mind? The Red Sea and the Exodus. And they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Hear this. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. 
What an odd thing for God to say. He usually tells them things like, I want you to commemorate this day. I want you to remember this day. And yet, because it is a hindrance to them in this situation, He says, I want you to forget it. It won't be worth comparing with what I'm doing. Sometimes the biggest hindrance to us receiving from God is that we have a certain conception based on our experiences of what He will and won't do. We often can't perceive of the divine workings of God because our heart's convictions, hear me, our heart's convictions have been transformed into God's restrictions. When I preached to you about outside the camp, a classic example of this would be two people saw a man whose life was to display the glory of God, but they came to radically different conclusions because of a heartfelt conviction. One said, God does not work on the Sabbath, so this guy can't be of God. And that sounds diseased and it sounds horrible, but how many churchy ideas have crept into us about what God will and will not do? Anybody in here go to the Brownsville Revival? Look, there's hands all over the room, even though that's hundreds of miles in states away. I was totally in love with Jesus when this came out totally, absolutely, head over heels in love with Jesus. And the first time I heard of it, I was a guest speaker in a church in Mississippi. And they played a video for me and I was horrified. I was horrified because I saw people bucking and jerking and I'd never seen that in my life. Right away, my own heart was filled with a conviction that was sincere. But I'd placed a restriction on what what God would do. The only reason that I got past that is people that I loved and I knew Jesus loved and they loved Jesus came back and said, no brother, it is of God. But even though I thought I was pliable, even though I thought I was in communion with God, when confronted with His work, I did not see it because it did not match the images and the setting and the, uh, what I had envisioned God having done in my past. I had never bucked and jerked. I had never seen anybody who had bucked and jerked. So I was convinced bucking and jerking could not be of God. Now this may sound silly at first, but maybe it's worth thinking about. Have you prayed for direction? Have you prayed for clarity? Have you prayed for God to share with you what He's doing in your future and then despise the people that He put in your life to teach you? Have you asked for a word and then, I did this one one time, Lord, tell me, tell me, please, I need to know. More than anything I need to know, I'd rather die than not know, but don't tell me through Him. (laughs) Guess who God chose? Yeah. See, sometimes we need to let go in order to grab a new thing. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the deserts and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. That word formed, by the way, is asa. That they may proclaim my praise. The point here is that God wanted to do something that was so amazing that if all they could think about was their past they would fail to perceive it. Turn with me to Habakkuk 1. We're going to read 1 through 5 here. Tell me when you're there. It ought to be easy to find since you just found it. Two of you are there. 
the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. What does that sound like to you? A complaint. Am I wrong? You can tell me if I'm wrong. Does that sound like a complaint? Sounds like a complaint. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not say it. That sounds almost like an accusation, doesn't it? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Sounds like Habakkuk sees no glory of God in this situation, huh? And this is a prophet of God, so don't think you're immune. He's sitting in a situation where it does not look like God's word can be true. Your law is paralyzed. It doesn't look like God is moving at all. And why? Because he sees wickedness everywhere. He sees nothing that is godly. Look at verse 5. I'm going to read this to you in the Amplified. Look around you, Habakkuk, replied the Lord, among the nations and see, and be astonished, be astounded, for I am putting into effect a work in your days such that you would not believe if it were told to you. God had something for Habakkuk that was not in the future. It was being put into effect during Habakkuk's days. Habakkuk saw nothing except the paralyzation of God's Word. He saw no glory of God in it. His heart had become callous to what God was doing because his eyes told him that God was not involved in the situation. What could have happened? Like, Why would that happen? Do you think maybe when Habakkuk received his call to be a prophet, he envisioned the entire nation coming to repentance? And now they're not. Has there ever been anybody that thought marriage would fix all of their problems? Then they woke up and found out it compounded them? Has there ever been anybody that was sure the next job, the next raise, that would make them happy? And you envision what it would be like. And in the six months in the job, it's nothing like you envisioned it. Six months into the marriage, it's nothing like you envisioned it. Six months into the ministry, it is nothing like you envisioned it. In this way, our heart's convictions of what we've envisioned become restrictions for what God can and can't do. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. To have faith, you must believe that He exists in your situation and that He rewards those who seek Him. My first Bible is filled with prophecies that are probably God. I mean, they're prophecies other people gave to me. There's a witness in my heart filled with prophecies. Almost none of them are present in my life today. There are difficulties with that. Because when somebody says, I see you as a prophet to Peru, what do you envision? Getting on a boat or a plane and going to Peru. So when God wants you to go to Lafayette, Louisiana, because He has some special people in mind, that can conflict with what God is actually doing in your life today. Do you see how what God has done for you, prophecies, encouragements, can become a restriction for God, what God wants to do with you right now? 
We have a fine way of setting aside our present circumstances, longing for something that is better, easier, something that you envisioned. It's probably important to see that Habakkuk was unable to see God's working in his situation because he didn't believe God's glory was in it. His heart had been hardened by his conceptions of what God should do versus what he saw. Probably was filled with all kinds of things of, like, when I went into ministry, Lord, you told me I would be used mightily. And he is used mightily, but he doesn't feel like it at all. Probably feels useless, like everything that he's doing is just not good enough. Well, welcome to the club, Habakkuk. That's how everyone feels who is doing something for Jesus. That's how you know it's his power working through you and not your own. Come on, are there no Habakkuks out there tonight? I know there are because you're called to work in a service. I see your encouragements and your discouragements. I know what you're longing for, and I can see what God is doing. That is the benefit of being a pastor. But if we don't begin to ask God to give us a new heart, His heart, we fail to perceive it. So we miss out on life that's really life, always wanting something different. Always wanting something we think is better, and we don't even know what we're asking for. A certain author said this, Hostility towards a move, i.e. vision, direction, working of God, never stems from the idea of the move, since that is what everyone is ardently praying for. In other words, nobody is upset when there's a move of God because it was a move of God. They're all praying for a move of God. No, the hostility is derived from the disparity between the form of what we anticipated and the form of what God chose to present us with. In other words, everybody wants God to move until He moves in a way that doesn't look like you had hoped it would look. Mm. Am I the only one in here that that just kind of crushes because it's me? I mean, when I read that, I understand what a spoiled brat I've been. I understand... That at times, I've wanted what God wants, but in my own way. Which, of course, would make me God and Him my servant. Wow, what an important thing to get right. The first and second Exodus are great examples of this. And since Exodus is what we started with in the book of Isaiah in the 43rd chapter, he said, I want you to forget about that Exodus because there's something I want to show you. Turn with me to Luke 9. In Luke 9, look at the 31st verse. Thirtieth verse. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Really, is that what Jesus was trying to bring about in Jerusalem, a departure? The King James there says Exodus. And the reason that it says Exodus is because the same Greek word that is translated here and can mean departure corresponds to a Hebrew word called the Exodus. Jesus was about to bring to fulfillment a miracle that was no less and in every regard is greater 
than Israel's exodus from Egypt. Why did the nation fail to see what had been prophesied? Was it because they didn't know the prophecies? Was it because they did not know the Scripture? No, friends, they knew the Scripture. But if God told you that something greater than the Exodus was about to occur, and all you had ever seen, all you had ever heard of was the first Exodus, you would be looking for it. So sometimes we fail to see what God is doing, not because He's incorrect, not because He hasn't told us, but simply our preconceived ideas or our imagery is wrong. You know, there was a time I had a vision that David would be married and have children. And I saw him in a certain sweater. I was actually kind of disturbed because it belonged to me. <laughs> Years later, he was getting married. Years later, he had children, right? Exciting thing. God's Word had come true. I spent some time concerned that I didn't ever see David in that sweater. You know, we see in part. We prophesy in part. We need to be very careful about adding details to what we think God has told us and then being disappointed if those details don't come about. You know, Paul didn't get to choose what his calling was, did he? I mean, there was nowhere for him to put in his union application for orators for God or emissaries for God. If you just had to guess at what Paul would have liked to have spent his life doing, do you think it was running to all the Gentile empires of the world? Or do you think he had a passion for his people? So much so that he could wish he was cut off for their sake. You do not get to choose what you do for Jesus. He chooses it. It's your job to adjust your heart so that you can receive it and see glory in it and take delight in it and be thrilled to death that the lamb that was slain receives the reward of his suffering. Amen. We need to not spend time mourning that today does not look like we envisioned it ten years ago. It never will, saints. It never will. God has a way of sneaking up on you and doing exactly what He said He was going to do in a way you never could have conceived He was going to do it. So much so that after we built this building, the church already existed, we built the church and the people, and then we had a building to house us, I was outside squatting beside that telephone pole praying, my heart beating out of my chest, overwhelmed with silly stresses. And I realized it was the same day that Jesus first spoke to me about these things. And yet I was surprised when it happened. It had been more than 15 years, but I was surprised. It snuck up on me because it didn't look anything like I envisioned it. And yet it was every bit as full of glory. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. We must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. He exists in your workplace. He exists in your marriage. He exists in whatever level of ministry you're operating in. Begin to give Him reverence in those situations. Begin to thank Him in those situations. Begin to adjust your dreams to what you are living for God now and you will have a fulfilled life. I wrote a note down here that I already kind of mentioned to you, but it might be worth reading again. Have you ever prayed for direction, correction, ministry, and then shunned it because you didn't like who it came through, or it didn't immediately line up to what you had imagined? 
Maybe we need to let go of something that is older so we can grab what is newer. Turn with me to John. You'll work to the left from Luke. You'll be in the first chapter of John. Y'all still with me tonight? You know, I told you to go to the left from Luke. That would that put you in the wrong book. I just need to make sure y'all are still awake, still listening. Listen to this. This is maybe, this scripture maybe hit me harder than any has hit me this year. This is John 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own, what's that say? Did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Come on, you're all theologians, so when you read this, who are we talking about? Except it's speaking about you. Because you're His own. And how many times has He come to us in a situation to move in a way that we had not anticipated and so we didn't receive Him. Let let me refresh our memory. Here's one from the United States. This comes from the Azusa Street Revival. I want you to hear these sickening, deafening words and then I'll tell you who said them. Disgraceful intermingling of races. They cry and make howling noises all day and all night. They run and jump and shake all over. They shout to the top of their voice, spin around in circles, fall out in sawdust blanketed floors, jerking and kicking and rolling like idiots. Some of them pass out and do not move for hours as though they were dead. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged or under some sort of religious spell. They claim to be filled with the Spirit. They have one They have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head between two wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, repent, and he's supposed to be the one running the thing. They repeatedly sing the same song, The Comforter Has Come. That was a church's response to the Azusa Street Revival. The newspaper right there in Los Angeles, said Christians from nearly every denomination have been critical, saying this movement is hyper-emotional, misuses Scripture, and has lost the focus of Christ by overemphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Within a short time, the denominational ministers were warning their congregations to stay away from the Azusa Street Mission. Some even called the police and tried to have the building shut down. He came to his own and they did not recognize him. Friends, these were not Jews. These were good Baptists, good Methodists, good Lutherans, good Episcopalians, good Catholics. The first church to step out and denounce this movement and publicly warn his people they were apostatized if they went was the Nazarene church. Which ironically is just crazy since they believe in a second moving of God's Holy Spirit. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Why did they receive Him not? Because it did not look like they imagined. Wow. The Methodists began as a persecuted movement within the Anglican Church, but because they wanted biblical repentance, purification of the clergy, and conducted, oh my goodness, open-air meetings... As time went on, they became respected. And then after they had achieved a level of respect, they persecuted William Booth. 
another minister who tried to minister to the poorest of the poor by creating a little cultish group called the Salvation Army. The Baptists were at first a handful of radicals on the fringe of the Puritan movement, but eventually they became respectable, and you guessed it, they began persecuting anybody who spoke in other tongues. The Assemblies of God was at first a small body of men who were no longer welcome within their existing denominations, but as they grew to become respectable, they too seemed to resist any new thing God is doing. It would seem that what begins as radical, a wild outbreak for God, settles down at a respectable age, then rejoices in its respectability, and relaxes into creeping death. At some point, we have to let go of what God has done in our past and receive what He's doing in our future. Otherwise, what was once wild and a fiery outbreak of God settles into a creeping death. I'm not speaking about denominations as much as us. I'm speaking about you. I'm speaking about me. It can be difficult to do what God is telling us to do today because it does not imagine, it doesn't look like what we've always imagined God's move would look like. But let me ask you something. How big would God be if you were able to foresee what all of His workings look like? Well, we're fine with saying that denominations have missed that, but let's ask about your life. Have you failed to enjoy the present time period you're in because it doesn't look like what you imagined? Have you gone so far as to say God's not in it because it doesn't look like what you imagined? The glory of the Lord covers the earth. It's our knowledge of it that needs to increase. God is very much existent in our present circumstances. We need to believe that He rewards those who seek Him and seek Him in those circumstances rather than always looking to escape them and going to some other. Has God given you a vision of something that you know was true, but now you are facing it? And don't recognize it because it's different than you envisioned it. Let me ask you something. Go to, go to the second chapter of Joel. I know you know these words. We're all over the Minor Prophets tonight. That's a good Bible workout for you. We're going to be in the second chapter of Joel. Y'all mad at me? I hope not. I hope this is encouraging. I'm encouraged by it. <laughs> Why does God ask you to forget the old thing? Because He wants to give you something new. On any other day, on any other subject, in any other area of your life, don't you want to let go of what is old to grab what is new? I mean, how many of you out there are so enthralled with your old car you wouldn't take this year's model? How many of you out there are so enthralled with your old washing machine that you would not want whatever is the newest and nicest? How about your house? Most of us are willing to let go of what is old to grab onto what is new in every other area. Could be that there's some fear motivating our decisions. We'd like to just play it safe. We'd like to sit in discontentment and act as if God has done something wrong. Can you believe that Habakkuk did that? Before you shame him too badly. 
How many situations in your life have you thought, this doesn't look like you told me it would, Lord? I moved here and it's not what you said it was. I stepped out in obedience and it didn't turn out like I thought it was. I studied hard to show myself approved and, and the, the heaven all come and run to me and said, what must I do to be saved? Come on, are there, nobody out there can, can relate to those words? I know you can. We're hoping as our congregation becomes uh, so mixed that we, we actually will shed some of this white reservation that is in here. It's okay to agree out loud. <laughs> it's okay to speak. <laughs> you know, those are holdovers from three centuries ago when the collars were so tight that people couldn't speak. In <laughs> Acts 2, look at the... I'm sorry. Joel 2, look at the 28th verse. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. He goes on to say beautiful, wonderful things. How many Jews do you think knew that? All of them. Every single one of them. So why in Acts 2 does Peter have to say, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke? Come on now. It didn't look like what they thought. Who was gathered in Jerusalem at the time that it was said? Many devout Jews from every nation. But it did not look like they had envisioned it, so they were poised to reject it. It's in our nature. If we don't understand it, we're scared of it. They were poised to reject it, even though Joel had said it, they had memorized it, they could quote it, when it happened right in front of their faces, they did not see it. How about this one? Look at John for me. We're going to wrap this up here in just a second, but you need to see the fifth chapter of John. You know, it's an odd thing when you examine biblical history, when you examine Christian history, the greatest proponents of what God is doing on the planet, it's not the Satanist. It's not the demon-possessed. The greatest opponents of what God is doing on the planet are those who are supposed to be biblically literate. Those whose heart's convictions have become restrictions for God. My heart-held conviction is that when the last apostle died, the gifts stopped operating. So even when Jessica loves Jesus more after than before, God does not do this anymore. And she's no longer welcome. The opposition to God's movement has not come from biblically ignorant people, although I sometimes present it that way, because there's levels of ignorance. It doesn't come from lost people. It doesn't come from people who are standing there with no preconceived ideas, they have no idea what's happening and just think it's good. It comes from people that are convinced that they already understand all God will do or has ever done. Listen to John 5. Here comes the 39th verse. 
Hey, don't read that. Don't read it. 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 Look at me. If you had to describe some words to describe, if you had to choose words to describe your study, right? Like, uh, let's just say Lindsay wants to become a geologist, so she studies. We could say she studies poorly. We could study, say she studies, you know, average. We could say she studies diligently. We could say she studies a lot of ways. What one would she choose for her studies? Lindsay was a good student, so she may choose a positive accolade. What word describes your study of God's Word? Would you say it was diligent, persistent, tenacious? How many of you know Jesus does not lie? Lord, I'm standing in front of people that think Jesus is alive. How many of you know Jesus does not lie? Amen. Verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures. Friends, if the king of the universe said that these people's study of the scriptures was diligent, can you believe him? You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So how do they diligently study the Scripture and yet not recognize God when He walks up to them in the flesh? The same way that the church has diligently studied but failed to recognize every single move of God that has happened historically. Wales, Scotland, Ireland, England, America, whoever the religious establishment is, misses the boat. And why? Because it is not as they imagined that it would be. You know, if Adam lived in the 17th century, speaking about Adam Ainsworth. And he got saved. And so he wrote down everything that happened when he got saved, including the clothes he was wearing when he got saved. Why would we expect Kelsey to get saved in the 21st century and be wearing those same clothes? And yet we act like God only moves in the same historic way that He did in whatever century our followers are acquainted with. If we were going to do that, friends, it would have to be the first century and you would be wearing something that looked like a toga. And yet, a question I get every time I leave this church and people have watched it on video is how can you preach in shorts and sandals? I get it every single time I meet new people. How can you wear one of those ridiculous nooses around your neck? How can you preach in that? Well, it's... Why do we think God's moving? Why do we think God's moving in every century wears the same clothes? And friends, I'm not speaking about clothes. It's an allegory. I hope you're getting it. Sometimes we need to let go of the old so that we can grab the new. I don't just mean this as a church or as a society. I mean it in a very personal way. You know how many people have damaged their walk because in the first year they were sure that they were a prophet to the nations? And now they're in the 17th year. They still don't prophesy in the local assembly of believers. But they're hanging on to that. Saints, at some point we need to embrace what God is doing right now and say, Lord, 
I want your heart in this matter. I don't really see glory, but I know it's here. Reveal it to me. I don't feel very useful in this situation, and yet I know you're at work in it. Show me. Show me. Help me. The fastest way for serious Christians to become discontented is when you don't feel useful, and it is not reality. It's a perception. Because God's glory is already covering the whole earth. You just don't have knowledge of it. Habakkuk thought he was making no difference. He thought God was making no difference. And he thought God's word was making no difference. And yet, he made a difference. See, when we say, Mary, did you know? And all of those things. Of course not. But they did it anyway. Saints, this is what this is God's new thing. His new thing may not look like the first exodus. It may look more like the second. But which was more successful? You got to participate in the second exodus. Leaving death and entering into life. It's important to know about the Pharisees that they were the revival movement of their day. They were the reaction to liberalism. Come on evangelicals, you like that, don't you? They were the reaction... To liberalism. Sadducees said, oh, there's no resurrection. There's no angels. I don't know why people tell you all that. There's no demons. You know what there is? There's the temple service and the temple coffer boxes. This is what you need to focus on. And so the Pharisees were a reaction to that. They said, no, we must get back to the Word. You must study the Word. The highest form of worship is not temple. It's Word. You would be in that group. I would be too. And most of the time, Jesus showed agreement with their theology. So much so that in Matthew 23, He says, do what they say. They said, Moses, see. But don't do what they do. Because they failed to recognize God's movement in their midst, even though... Another author said, you evangelicals, he was picking on us. He said, you evangelicals have all the right answers, but never draw any of the right conclusions. It's true. We'll write a treatise on why Scripture means what Scripture means, and then you see an example of it right in front of your face, and don't recognize it. And where we're slowest to recognize it is in our own lives. We're convinced that in our workplaces there's no benefit for God. In our homes, there's no benefit for God. We're not even really doing anything in our church. We might as well not be there. What is this the voice of? It's certainly not God's Holy Spirit convicting you to do more. It's the devil heaping condemnation upon you so that you will give up. This is why the Word says, do not give up. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. It doesn't have an exception. Unless you're in one of those areas, God is not working. Because He is working in every area. All of the time. Jesus said, my Father is at work even to this day. What would make you think He's not at work in your situation? Let go of those old thoughts so you can grab a new one. They diligently studied, but they didn't like the way God chose to do something, so they rejected it. And the most amazing thing is in rejecting the way God chose to do it, Luke says they rejected God's purpose for their lives. See, when we refuse to do it God's way, when we refuse to yield our thoughts to His thoughts, we reject the reason for which we were born. 
because he put you on this planet for the purpose. I have lots more examples, but I don't think they're necessary. I want to tell you that Peter had a pretty difficult time going to the Gentiles, didn't he? He saw a sheep. God talked to him through food. Would God do that? Apparently so. Three times, Peter said, Oh no, Lord, I have never. It was a ministry he simply could not have envisioned and quite frankly, was not something he really wanted. He probably would rather go back and minister in his hometown. And he was the very first Jew to see a Gentile get filled with God's Holy Spirit. Not even Paul beat him out of that honor. Hmm. Do you remember that he stumbled in Galatians 2, it's mentioned? He didn't stumble. I'm not speaking about Jesus on the cross. I'm not speaking about him denying him. I'm not talking about his difficulty in seeing the Gentiles needed to be saved. The man who was said, at least by our Catholic friends, to have been given the keys to the kingdom, had now seen Gentile walk into the kingdom. And in Galatians 2, he's reverting back to some old behavior. And he won't eat with them in the presence of other people. Because it's so difficult just to imagine a ministry like this. Even though it's the one God was giving him. Are you feeling me here, saints? Let's embrace the ministry God's given us. Let's let Him bring it to its highest fruition. If He's done as much as He's done with us kicking and screaming and fighting against it, what will He do when you're fully on board with it? <coughs> when you refuse to think that He's not involved in some aspect of your life, but instead look for Him in every aspect of your life. So the next time the annoying lady at work says something to you, you look for God in it. The next time your boss comes down on you with something ridiculous, you look for God in it because this is the ministry He gave you. It may be that our God is trying to give us exactly what He promised in a way that we had not been able to conceive of. My word to you tonight is that you may have to let go of some of your conceptions. Look for Jesus in your present situation and receive His heart and His new thing for you. Revelation 21.5 says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. You cannot get new without letting go of old. Stand to your feet. Yes, ma'am. Stand up and testify, Larissa.
Zebulon's gift like a cow. Siren, like a young wild ox, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert, the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry for glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And while we were worshiping, I felt like someone was holding on to my hand and walking me. And like Jesus asked me to marry him. That is awesome, Larissa. You're a princess in every situation you find yourself. The Lord is enthroned above it. Did you hear that? Above floods, tornadoes, warfare. He's enthroned above it all. We just need to choose to see it that way and ask Him to reveal it to us. Now, as much as some of that may felt like a corrective word, here's my God's honest gut instinct. Most people in here have already turned that corner, but this is a situation you were in. And I want to encourage you not to return to it. God has got good things in store for us. And I thoroughly believe this. I think there are ministries in this room that our ministry will need. I think God is bringing people in here that don't as much need my daily influence or Matthew's daily influence as yours. I really wholeheartedly believe that. And I think it's important then that you learn to see ministry in the situation that you're in right now. And that you learn to embrace it and not be looking for something in the distance that God has put right here. If He wants to move you, if He wants to change your ministry or your conception of ministry, He will absolutely jerk you out of what you're doing. I promise that. You don't have to worry about missing it. He's done it to me now. Before I moved out of Louisiana, I sat in front of Wade and Christy, who are now on our board. They said, Eric, we are ready to go with you wherever you go. We will be worship leaders. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll clean the floors in the church wherever you go. I look Wade and Christy right now and said, that church will need you if I leave, and I am never leaving. You hear me? I'm not going anywhere. I am right here. This is what God has shown me. This is what I'm doing. Two weeks later, I was in another state. Okay? He will move you when He wants to. Until that time, stretch your wings. Do everything that your heart could possibly desire in this situation. And you know what? You will flourish. You will flourish, and it is... <laughs> it's a better life than the books are promising your best life now. I promise that. Let's pray. Mighty, mighty God. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for all that You are doing in this place. We ask that You would illuminate to us how to grab on to the new. Lord, we thank You for Your Word's correction. We do not want to be the John 1.11 pattern. We don't want to be those that are Your own but don't receive You. We want to receive You even if it's dramatically different than we anticipated. Lord, I say that even with a certain amount of intrepidation. I'm a little scared, and yet I love You enough to be fearfully, frightfully connected to You and still joyfully expect what You're doing. Holy One, have Your way in this group. and the lives of these people, be exalted. You have earned that right, and we want to give it to You. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So Sunday's message is going to have something to do with the larger fabric of life. There was going to be a skit that uh, I think will illustrate some of those things. And it ought to be a blessing to you. Bring somebody. Amen? amen. As a weak amen. <laughs>